Heavenly Father, we hope that it's not too much that you would bless us this time with your presence. We long to understand deeply this salvation we've been called in through through your Son, Jesus Christ. We want to see clearly, Father, where we used to be, how we used to live. We want to see clearly the great work that Christ accomplished on the cross to reconcile us into your kingdom. And we want to see now how we stand, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And by your grace, Father, encourage us to stay the course that we might remain steadfast and not deviate from the hope of the gospel of grace. We ask, Lord, that you would edify us this morning by showing us Christ more clearly. For in so doing, Lord, you will quicken our hearts and give us the desire to run after him with all our might, all our life. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Good morning. Most of you know that my son got married yesterday. Many of you know that because you were there. Very, very thankful that you joined us in that incredible occasion. Uh, The process of a wedding takes time, and leading up to a marriage takes time. In our cultural moment, two people will meet each other, they'll get to know each other, and if God so ordains, they will actually get engaged, and once they get engaged, they'll begin to plan for the wedding, and as they get closer, they'll have uh, bridal showers, and sometimes the men will go out and do things and have some fun. And then there is a rehearsal dinner, and then there is the actual wedding where the vows are taken, and there's a celebration feast afterward, and then there's the honeymoon and the consummation of those vows. And that's the way we do it today. In the New Testament culture, it was a little different. In the New Testament Jewish culture, the father of the groom would first go and pay the father of the bride for the wife. And then they would leave, and the father and the son would go, and they would make the bridal chambers, the place where they were going to live. And as soon as the bridal chamber was ready, the father and the son, they would go back, and they would get the bride, and they would bring her to the place where she would be married. And they would do this first. They would come into a ritual purification. The woman would be purified, a process of purification through washing and cleansing and oils. Then they would have a private ceremony, where they would take their vows, and then they would have the feast, which would last for seven days. The detailed process of marriage ordained by God is very similar to the detailed process that God uses to bring us into his kingdom. It is a difficult process, and we should be very careful when entering into marriage. And it is a difficult process for an unsaved man, a sinful man, and a sinful woman to come into the presence of God of a thrice holy God, bringing us out of the darkness and into the light of the sun. Last week, we had a chance to look at the sun as creator, as sustainer, as head of his church. And I pray you were deeply encouraged by that passage. I know it encouraged me just to study it. We got to see Jesus Christ as the head of the church, the preeminent one, where God says all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile him to himself all things by making peace by the blood of the cross. And so the cross is instrumental in all human history because at that point in time, God intervened to do three amazing things. One, restore the broken creation, to bring back harmony and peace to this broken earth. 
Number two, to exercise his justice, not only on Satan and all the demons, but all man who would continue to rebel against him. And then number three, God said, I will make a people for myself. I will create a bride. I will have a church that will come into my presence and worship me forever. Now, if you know God and you know the God of the Bible, those first two are pretty easy to understand. If he's the creator of all that is seen and unseen, then he has all power. He can certainly bring harmony and peace to his broken creation. He can clean the air. He can fix the seas. He can help the birds and all the animals who are struggling as a result of our sin. We get that. Even the second part I think we get. If he's a holy and just and good God, then we can see him exercising his justice on all those who remain in rebellion against him. That makes sense as well. But this last promise, this creating of a people through the cross of Christ is problematic for us. And it's problematic because we know ourselves. How does a good and just God save sinful men? How does he remain just and remain good and allow people like us into his kingdom? This is the question I would like to look at today. If God is holy and good, then how does he allow a sinful man or a sinful woman to not only come into his kingdom, but to remain forever? So let's look at that this morning. Let's look at how God goes through a diligent process, very much like a wedding process, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. And how does he equip us to remain there for all eternity? I want to do that by looking at four things. One, the old man. Number two, the new man. Number three, the purpose for making us new. And number four, the conditions for remaining. The old man, the new man. Why did God make you new? And how do you stay? How do you stay this course all the way to the end? Let's look at the old man first. Verse 21. The Apostle Paul is talking to the church in Colossae. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's talking to believers who were once lost and have now been found in Christ. But this is a true definition of all mankind. We know this because elsewhere in Scripture, Paul writes in Romans 3, speaking of the universal condition of every human heart, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 10 and following. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he describes the heart. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the old man. That's the man, that's the woman before coming to a saving grace and Jesus Christ. And if you know Christ this morning, that's how you used to be. You were alienated from God. You were hostile in mind. And believe it or not, you engaged in evil deeds. You say, well, how was I alienated? Alienated is to be estranged. It means to not have a right relationship with someone. In this particular case, we were alienated from the living God. We did not know him through his son, Jesus Christ, before we were saved. To be hostile in mind, in the Greek, literally means to be at war. To be at war with God. And then, of course, being at war with God will lead to the evil deeds. And the emphasis in that word is pain-ridden. The deeds that we do that create misery and pain in our lives and in those who are around us. Now, this alienation goes all the way back to the garden. 
when Adam and Eve sinned against God and God cast them out of his presence. When that took place, all mankind was separated from the Creator. And all mankind, therefore, was engaged in war against the Creator. Many of you may say, you know what? I remember before I came to Christ, and I was not at war with God. We only think that because we don't realize a couple things. We don't know our purpose, why God created us, and we don't know the degree to which we have fallen from that purpose. Many would say, and I've had friends say this, I have no problem with God. You believe in God, that's fine. I have no problem with God. God has no problem with me. But that statement reveals the degree of their own alienation. To say you have no problem with God and you do not worship God tells you that you do not know the purpose for which you were made. You were made in the image of God to know Him. Not just know about Him, but know Him. You were made in the image of God to worship Him. You were made to give your entire life to follow His Son, Jesus Christ, and live in accordance with His teachings. So to say that it's okay, I don't know God, but I'm not hostile to Him, I'm not alienated from Him, reveals the degree of the alienation. Some will say, well, I'm not hostile in mind, and I'm certainly not evil in my deeds. And we only say that. Now listen to this. Because we do not know the one against whom we sin. We only say that I'm, I'm not hostile and I'm not evil in deeds because we don't realize the one to whom we are sinning against. So we say to ourselves, in a lazy fashion, and it is lazy thinking, well, the Satanist, the atheist, the agnostic, they may be hostile in mind against God. They talk against him. They speak against him. But I wasn't before I was saved. And some will say, when you say evil deeds, I think of someone like, like Osama bin Laden or, or Kim Jong-un. I mean, those, those men were practicing evil deeds. But, but I don't do that. I mean, yeah, occasionally I, I, may, I may lust after my neighbor's wife. Occasionally I may cheat on my taxes. Occasionally. Occasionally I may lie to my wife, but I, those are not evil deeds, Pastor. We conclude this, again, because we refuse to see the Holy One against whom we have sinned. David said rightly in Psalm 51.4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, speaking to God. Every sin is against God first. And God is, remember, the most holy, most beautiful, most pure, most radically intimate, glorious creature, the glorious creator of all that is seen and unseen. So you saying something like, I used to say this, so I'll just say it. When I get angry with my brothers and they were out of the house, I said, wait till my brother comes home, I'm going to kill him. Okay, that statement does not have the same magnitude as, Wait till the president gets back to the White House. I'm going to kill him. All right? The latter statement may get you thrown in jail. Why? The glory of the office, the position of the presidency requires that type of honor. Let me make it a little more simple. We have garbage that comes once a week. 52 weeks out of the year, garbage is leaving my driveway. I want you to imagine you take 52 weeks of garbage and you collect it, and you bring it all together, and you put it in this huge truck, and you drive it to the local garbage dump, and you dump it. Not going to be much of an impact, because there's lots of garbage there. In fact, you might not even have a discernible difference. Your 52 bags of garbage might not even be noticeable in the garbage dump. But do the same thing. Take 52 weeks of your garbage, and go to Yosemite, and drop it on the floor of the valley. 
or go to Pacific Grove and distribute it upon the beaches, or go to one of the, the peaks in the Sierras in the snow and just throw it all around. And you will say, this is unbearable, spewing garbage upon these pristine lands. It would be grievous. It would be noticeable. How much more so the spiritual realm where we take our sins, these sins that are against God, and we throw them upon him and we place them against him, the purest, most beautiful, perfectly pristine God. It's devastating. Every single sin is against him and every single sin violates him infinitely in his purity. And therefore, every single sin, small or large, must be punished in accordance with that crime. And if the crime is infinite, then the punishment must be infinite. And that's why the doctrine of hell still stands. And it absolutely must. You take away the doctrine of hell, and you diminish the purity of God. If God is pure, and we sin against him, and that is an infinite sin, then hell must be infinite and eternal as well. If I were to go out after church today, and I were to, I were to commit a triple homicide, and I'd be taken into court, and the judge sentenced me to two years in probation, people would be aghast, say, no, that man needs to go to jail for the rest of his life, or that man needs to be put to death. One sin against a holy God requires eternal damnation. One sin. So you can see that God being perfect and just He cannot simply allow sin and sinful people to come and dwell in his presence. If he did, it would be no different than us bringing the sin into heaven and throwing it before the throne of God. No different than you taking the garbage and throwing it on the beautiful beaches in Pacific Grove or Monterey. Psalm 5.4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Psalm 24, listen to this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So in order for God to take people like us who are alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds, he must go through an extreme process. You think it's hard for a bride and groom to get married. How much more so taking a sinner out of the darkness and bringing him into the kingdom of light? to come into the presence of God and not be judged, but welcomed, not be condemned, but brought in to the kingdom of Christ. We must be changed. You can't just say a prayer, and you can't just get baptized. There must be an internal transformation of heart and mind. In other words, just like the bride in the New Testament church who had to be purified before she was married, so too do we. We must be purified in order to enter the presence of God. Number two, the new man in Christ. Are you still with me? All right, I have enough energy for all of us, so I'm just going to give you a little bit of that. Verse 21, look with me. Paul says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Paul says, to the church now, that was past tense you. That was the old man. You were alienated, now you've been brought in. You were hostile in mind, but now you want to know the word of God and live in accordance with it. You used to practice, Paul says, you used to practice evil deeds, but now you want to submit to God in righteousness and love accordingly. And then he says, for all those who have been saved by faith in Christ, look at verse 22, he, speaking of Christ, this is the firstborn from the dead, this is the head of the church, this is the preeminent one, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. And so Paul says, this is who you once were, 
This was the old man. This was the old woman before Christ. And now, here you are. Now what? Now you've been reconciled. You've been brought all the way in. Now you're no longer hostile to God. Now you're no longer alienated. Now you're no longer engaged in evil deeds, but you desire righteousness for the sake of Christ. Old to new, estranged to intimacy, hostility to friendship and peace. Paul said it so well. This was a command to us to live in accordance with this truth, Ephesians 4. He said, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupting through desires. And then he said, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Through the death of Jesus Christ, by him becoming an atoning sacrifice for our sins, we can be made new. You say, well, how, how does God, how is he able to then come to us not as a judge? How does it change God's approach toward us? With Jesus Christ dying on the cross and you putting your faith in him, the obstacle of reconciliation between God and man is removed. This is the most extraordinary aspect of the gospel. As soon as you are saved by God's grace in Christ, God can now come to you and instead of judging you and pouring out his wrath on you for the just deserts of our sins, he can give to you grace and he can be merciful and kind. In other words, Jesus Christ allows God the Father to uphold the radical character of his holiness. God is infinitely holy and infinitely pure, and therefore he must judge all sin. But if we are to be saved, he can't judge us. So somehow that sin has to be reconciled. It's done through the cross. It's done so that God can maintain the kingdom principle of purity and holiness so we don't come and distribute all of our garbage at the throne in heaven. And that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's such an amazing thought that by faith in Christ, God can come to you and instead of judge you, bless you. Instead of condemn you, save you. He's relieved now of that tension because all that sin and all the punishment was placed upon Christ. And so God can take all of his kindness and all of his mercy and all of his love and he can pour it out on you, sinner now saved by grace. Now you're new. It's such glorious news. It opens up the door for God to indulge in kindness and mercy upon all who are saved. This process of reconciliation, we must not miss this, came by our Lord's physical death upon the cross. Look again. He, Christ, has now reconciled you, those who are saved by grace, in his body of flesh by his death. And that means that the reconciliation process that took place upon Calvary took place through a real man, his broken body and his spilled blood. It enables tens of thousands throughout the centuries to come into a right relationship with God. And instead of receiving wrath, we receive grace and mercy. And it could not have happened unless Jesus Christ took physical form and then died in the manner that he died and received the punishment that he received. He could not, listen, Jesus Christ in his divine nature could not receive the punishment of a physical man. And so he became the incarnate God-man. He came to earth to serve in that manner. You say, well, why is that? In order for a man's sins to be paid for, another man must die, or that man must die. That's why all the Old Testament sacrifices, all the sheep and all the goats and all the bulls, they were 
types and shadows that pointed to the man. Because you can't, you can't get an animal to die for your sins. I mean, and that, that makes sense, and it should for us. If, again, if, if, I, if I go out after church day and I commit murder and I'm brought before a judge and I'm charged and I'm found guilty, and let's say he sentenced me to life in jail, I can't go grab my dog and bring him before the judge and say, send my dog to jail in my place. The judge would rightly say, I can't do that for several reasons. One, the dog does not realize the magnitude of the crime that you committed. True. Two, the dog cannot experience the suffering and pain that you're going to experience in jail given that dog's lack of consciousness. And number three, most importantly for us, animals do not have eternal souls. You do. In order for someone to die for you, it must be a man who can experience in totality the exact same punishment that you would have received if not being in Christ. Not only that, it must be a man who is perfectly sinless Otherwise, he'd have to die for his own sins. Hence, Christ is Savior. He's the only man that matches that bill. He's the only one who was perfectly sinless his entire life and then desired to die on our behalf. Only the God-man matches that description because only he was innocent and only he desired to engage in this incredible sacrifice. Suffering for us, suffering for our sins and paying our debt. So his, his death on the cross brings total reconciliation for all who would be saved. Complete and total. 1 Peter 2.24, of Jesus, Peter said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Physical death. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then a, a piece of scripture you know so well. By his wounds you what? You have been healed. By his wounds, his physical wounds, the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood, you have been healed. You've been forgiven. So somehow, don't ask me how, somehow in three hours, that, that real man on that cross received the full, total punishment of all the sins of all who would be saved. Somehow, in three hours upon the cross, Jesus Christ was able to take and experience the eternity of hell that you and I and every believer throughout all human history would experience in hell. And he did that upon the cross in his body. And so physically and spiritually, Jesus Christ did the unthinkable. He took the full wrath of God, the equivalent of the punishment we rightly deserved, in order to give us his full righteousness that we might become as he is. And so just as Jesus' physical death on the cross enabled God to punish Christ and impart to us righteousness instead, it's the same sacrifice. You'll know this. It's the same sacrifice God uses to cultivate in our hearts a desire to know and follow Christ. There is no stronger appeal. There is no stronger appeal for a man to be saved. There's no stronger appeal for a woman to say, I will no longer be alienated. I will no longer be hostile in mind. I will no longer engage in evil deeds. There's no stronger appeal than a crucified Christ. There is none. It compels us to reflect deeply when we gaze upon a crucified Savior on our own sin. It causes us, and we must, think about the cost that was paid in order to pay for our sins. They were our sins that he bore. It must 
cause us to contemplate, if not Christ, then me. If he did not die in my place, then I would have to die that death. And not just the death upon the cross, but the eternal death of damnation apart from God forever. And it must, when we gaze upon a crucified Christ, it must cause us to see how radical God's love is for us. So radical and so deep that he would send his only begotten son to save wretches like us. Who does that? Only God. Only God through Christ. And if the dying love, the dying love of the Son of God does not lead the sinful heart back to God, nothing will. There's been no greater peace made, no greater settlement between warring parties than what took place upon the cross. And if you do not know Christ, and you do not love God after looking upon a crucified Savior, you never will. So number three, what was the purpose for all of this? Why make us new? Why not leave us old? Look at verse 22. He has now reconciled you, Christ, in his body of flesh by his death in order. So here's the important transition in our verse. Here's the purpose for it all. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You remember the problem? God is holy, we are not. God is pure, we are alienated, hostile in mind, and committing evil deeds. And, and Jesus Christ and God the Father and we know the Holy Spirit, they want us with God. But they can't just go and grab us and put us into his presence. We have to be changed. And so through the cross, this great reconciliation and this great transformation takes place so that we can, here's the purpose, we can come before God and stay. You can worship God forever. That was the purpose of the great work of the cross of Jesus Christ, in order to glorify him. Paul says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Who's the him? It's God. It's the Father. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has clean hands and a pure heart? No one apart from Christ. And so Jesus Christ came not only to take away the alienation and not only to make us no longer hostile in mind and have evil deeds, but to actually give us pure hands, clean hearts. He did this so we can come into the kingdom. He did this so we could become citizens of the kingdom, sons and daughters of God, before the throne for all eternity, worshiping, loving, and being loved by God. This work enables God the Father to grant us forgiveness and simultaneously provide the righteousness of Christ we need to enter the throne room. You can't enter the throne room unless you have it. None of us have clean hands and pure hearts, but in Christ we can. This is the amazing power of the cross. That's why gospel-centered churches and Bible-believing churches, you'll always hear about the cross, and you'll always hear about Christ and a crucified Savior because it all comes back to this. This is the entrance into heaven. If you don't go through the cross of Christ, you don't get in because you remain alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. The work of the Savior changes the old man to the new man so completely that Paul is able to say these things about us now. Remember, he said you used to be alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But now what? Now you are holy and blameless and above reproach. And you're sitting there saying, well, that's not me. 
It is you in Christ. It is who you will be when you come into his presence. It is who he was making you to be right now. The word holy, I love this. It means literally to be set apart. But God is saying, in Christ right now, I have set you apart. You have been. You're here this morning by God's grace to worship Christ. Why are you not in bed? Why are you not going to head to the beach to cool off today? You're here because Christ has already set you apart. He is sanctifying you and making you holy. You are in Christ blameless. That, mer- that word literally means unblemished. It means perfect. You say, well, I'm not perfect yet. In your flesh, you're not. In Christ, you are, and one day you will be. And that, this word also means that all, that all the detrimental effects of sin that we suffer from, our minds, our bodies, eventual sickness and eventual death, will be completely removed So in your restored state, in your glorified body before Christ, it it will be as though the sin never touched you. Not only forgiven, not only restored, but as though it never happened. Yeah, I know, that's a hard one for me too. How is that possible? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. You know what that means? No charge against you. No charge against you, saints. Because you have a fear. Because I have this fear. I'm going to come before God on that day and he's going to be the holy God and I'm going to stand there in Christ and Satan's going to be there and he's going to say, oh no, 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 I know this Keith. Here are his sins. And he's going to bring them before the judge and I'm going to be condemned. That's the fear that I have. But what Paul says here is that on that day, I will be above reproach. And that literally means that there is absolutely nothing. There's no law that I have broken. There's no transgression that I'm culpable for. In other words, I will be able to stand before God in Jesus Christ, not only sinless, but above all sin. In other words, Satan will accuse, and the judge will say, not this one. My son bore that. Not this one. They can't stick. You will be guiltless. That's why we're able to sing that you will be white as snow, pure as Christ is pure. What a picture. What a picture of the new man and the new woman in Jesus Christ standing on that day, being holy and blameless and above reproach. Hard for you to imagine, is it not? It is, but you must, because that's who you are in Christ right now, and that's the completion, that's the end for you in the presence of God, being made holy as he is holy. My beloved, the whole work of Jesus Christ upon the cross to bring God glory was for that day when the Redeemer brings his redeemed people and he presents them before the throne. And we stand together with Christ our Savior and the church throughout the centuries, the thousands upon thousands of saints who have been saved, and we stand together and we sing to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What an incredible day. Who would want to miss that day? If you think it's real and you want to miss that, then you're out of your mind. 100% recovered from the devastation of sin. 100% restored from our alienation. 100% made right from our our evil deeds and our hostile minds. 100%. We're not going to recognize each other. I mean, we will know each other, but we're not going to recognize each other. We're going to be saying, I had no idea how evil you were still. I had no idea how hostile in mind you still were because we're going to be so radically changed in Christ on that day. What a day. What a day. All right, let me get the last point. I'll close. 
You used to be the old man. You're now the new man. And the purpose of making you new is to bring you before God because you must be. We can't enter his presence sinful. So the last one is the condition for remaining, and this is important. Look at verse 22. Christ is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, listen. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You remember from week one when we started this letter, Paul was writing to the Colossians because there were false teachers coming in. And they were saying the gospel's good, but you got to have religion. The gospel's good, but you got to have asceticism. The gospel's good, but you need secret knowledge and a little philosophy. Paul's making it infinitely clear here that your only hope of being taken out of an alienated state, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and becoming holy and blameless and above reproach. Your only hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. He doesn't make that, he can't make it any more clear here. If you deviate, if you do not remain steadfast, if you put your hope in anyone or anything other than the gospel of Christ, you will lose that hope. It is a warning of the highest degree and the highest magnitude that his people must hear, that we must hear this morning. Our Lord, speaking of the last days, said something very similar in Matthew 24. Listen, these are the words of Christ. He said, many false prophets will arise on that day and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So as lawlessness increases, our love decreases, and we lose focus of Christ. And we begin to look at Christ and religion and Christ and philosophy and Christ and works. And the Colossians were to know, as we are to know, it is Christ and the gospel only. It's the gospel that had been preached under all creation. It was the gospel the Apostle Paul shared with the Paphras, who then went and shared it with the Colossians. I do not believe there is any greater loss than a man or woman can experience than to make a professing faith in Jesus Christ, to get a taste of no longer being alienated, to somehow see that God is desiring to make them holy and blameless, to have that understanding and to move from that stable, steadfast foundation in Jesus. No greater mistake you can make than to come into the church and profess faith in Christ and become a member of a covenant community and then leave that. No greater mistake. There is no higher warning to any man. Paul's saying, don't listen to the philosophies that take you away from Christ. Don't listen to the workers who say it's Christ and this. Don't listen to those who spew secret knowledge and talk about uh, visions and dreams. Don't listen to them. The warning is severe because the consequences of missing it are infinite. If there is no other way, then it's only Christ. And if you've heard anything I've said thus far, you know it must be so. If you stop for a minute and you contemplate the magnitude of your sin against this 
pure, infinitely holy God, then you realize, I'm doomed. And if you contemplate the degree to which God had to go by killing Christ, killing the Son in order to save you, you will say, it must be Him. And if you contemplate the degree to which you must be what? You must become holy, blameless, and above reproach to get into the throne room. You'd say, well, there's no other way. If we contemplate these things, then we will say with the Apostle Paul, I will remain steadfast because apart from Christ, I have no hope. No hope. No hope apart from Christ and the gospel of grace if I want to be saved. Acts 4.12, Peter said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Steadfast. In our day and age, the gospel of grace and the work of Christ is also under great attack. It was not something that just the Colossians were suffering from. And so we must be careful. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the faith, how long you've known Christ or read your Bible. You must be very careful to not allow heirs to come in to shift your hope and make you not steadfast in the gospel of Jesus Christ, putting your hope in something else. I fear today that many in the Western church have in fact embraced a cultural Christianity that does not align itself with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an easy beliefism that rejects obedience, rejects sanctification, and rejects the call and the command to bear much fruit by God. It's a Christianity that dismisses the calling to be holy as he is holy. It is a Christianity that dismisses Jesus Christ telling us to be the salt and light of the world, to purify, to illuminate the lost. We reject that, even though Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how will it be made salty again? How will it be restored? And then he said this, It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's the deviation from the gospel itself. And then a few verses later in verse 20, he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's not a works theology. He's saying if you've been saved by grace and born again, you will live holy lives. And if you deviate from that, if you say, I'm good with the grace, but I'm going to continue in my sin, I'm going to hold on to my baptism, but I'm going to live a licentious life, then Christ will say, you never knew him. I am thankful that the Bible teaches that those who are truly saved, those who have been born again, the word we use in theology is regenerated. You cannot be lost. We call it the doctrine of perseverance. That if Christ has saved you, you belong to him. That you can't get out of it. What a glorious problem to have. We can't get out of the love of God. We can't get out of being saved. We can't get out of God making us holy and blameless and beyond reproach to bring into his presence. Great problem to have if you know Jesus Christ. It means that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. No powers, no height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation can separate you from the love of God you have in Christ Jesus our Lord, if you know him. This assurance leaves no room for complacency. Saying, I know him, pastor, it means do not be complacent. Remain steadfast. Pursue him with all your might. Read your Bible. Pray. Be in fellowship. Be in community. 
Paul said, I like in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. So this passage, I pray, has done a few things for us. One, that we remember who we once were. If you're in Christ right now, and you think about how you used to be and who you were before Christ, you realize that you were, in fact, alienated, and you were hostile in mind, and your evil deeds were plentiful. If you know that's how you used to be, then how can you be prideful now? This truth, if understood, must cultivate in the heart of the believer radical humility. Because apart from Christ, that's who you would still be. If we know now in Christ who we are, that we've been reconciled, that right now, that's who you used to be, but the new man, the new woman in Christ, you've been reconciled. Is there any greater reason to rejoice? Is there any greater assurance that you can have than to know that right now, if today were your last day and you were to enter the throne room of God, you would be welcomed? No greater assurance and no greater joy than at this moment to know that you know Christ, that you have, in fact, been reconciled to God the Father. If you're saying right now, that's not me, then today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe and put your faith in Christ. Salvation is offered to all. So say to yourself, yes, I was that man, and confess your sins and turn to Christ. If you know that the purpose of the work of the cross is to present you before God the Father holy and blameless and above reproach, then will you not be sanctified? Will you not with your whole life? If that's your end, holiness, blameless, guiltless before God, if that's your end, will you not spend your whole life running after that, being sanctified day after day after day? And we must, by God's grace, Remain steadfast. Guard your hearts. These are dangerous times. Many false teachers teaching things that are something other than Jesus Christ. Guard your hearts. Remain steadfast. And I pray that God would grant us a deeper understanding of these truths, that he might continue to transform us into the image of his glorious son until Christ comes again in glory or until he takes us home. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we struggle with this idea that we are at war with you. We struggle with the teaching that, in fact, our deeds, most of them, have been evil in your eyes. We struggle with this because the flesh hates to admit that we're not fit for the kingdom. But you revealed that clearly in your word, and you revealed that most clearly in sending your Son to earth. We have seen the Holy One, and we are not He. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us to see the depth of our sin. Show us, Father, even this morning, that we have been, if we are in Christ, truly reconciled. The debt's been paid. We have a good standing with you now. There is no fear of condemnation if we're in your Son. Show us that, Father, and press it in deep. Show us, I pray, that even now, even now in Christ, there's a holiness and a blamelessness and a guiltlessness, Father, that you have given to us. And I ask, Lord, that you would guard us. Protect our hearts, please. There's a temptation to move away from the hope of the gospel. There's a temptation to put our hope in something other than Christ alone. 
Guard our hearts. Guard this church. Guard your church here in San Jose and throughout the world from that wicked, wicked movement. Instead, keep us steadfast, I pray. Hold us fast to Christ that we might live lives that truly please you. Keep us faithful, Lord, until you call us home or until Christ comes. And on that day, Lord, help us to remind ourselves and think regularly about the Redeemer and the redeemed coming before your presence. Help us to see the church universal coming into your presence and being blessed with the holiness and blamelessness and the guiltlessness that you will give us in Christ. We ask that you would do this, Lord, for your own glory, for you are most worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.